0: CHAPTER Ten, THE SUBMARINE COAL MINES The next day, the 20th of February, I woke very late. The fatigues of the previous night had prolonged my sleep until eleven o'clock. I dressed quickly, and hastened to find the course the Nautilus was taking. The instrument showed it to be stilled toward the south, with a speed of twenty miles an hour and a depth of fifty fathoms. The species of fishes here did not differ much from those already noticed. There were rays of giant size, five yards long, and endowed with great muscular strength, which enabled them to shoot above the waves. Sharks of many kinds, amongst others one fifteen feet long, with triangular sharp teeth, and whose transparency rendered it almost invisible in the water, Amongst bony fish, Conseil noticed some about three yards long, armed at the upper jaw with a piercing sword. Other bright-colored creatures, known in the time of Aristotle by the name of the sea dragon, which are dangerous to capture on account of the spikes on their back. About four o'clock, the soil, generally composed of a thick mud mixed with petrified wood, changed by degrees, and it became more stony, and seemed strewn with conglomerate and pieces of basalt, with a sprinkling of lava. I thought that a mountainous region was succeeding the Long Plains, and accordingly, after a few evolutions of the Nautilus, I saw the southerly horizon blocked by a high wall, which seemed to close all exit. Its summit evidently passed the level of the ocean. It must be a continent, or at least an island, "'one of the Canaries, or one of the Cape Verde Islands. "'The bearings not being yet taken, perhaps designedly, "'I was ignorant of our exact position. "'In any case, such a wall seemed to me to mark the limits of that Atlantis, "'of which we had in reality passed over only the smallest part. "'Much longer should I have remained at the window, "'admiring the beauties of sea and sky, but the panels closed.' At this moment, the Nautilus arrived at the side of this high, perpendicular wall. What it would do, I could not guess. I returned to my room. It no longer moved. I laid myself down with the full intention of waking after a few hours' sleep, but it was eight o'clock the next day when I entered the saloon. I looked at the manometer. It told me that the Nautilus was floating on the surface of the ocean. Besides, I heard steps on the platform. I went to the panel. It was open, but instead of broad daylight as I expected, I was surrounded by profound darkness. Where were we? Was I mistaken? Was it still night? No, not a star was shining, and night has not that utter darkness. I knew not what to think when a voice near me said, "'Is that you, Professor?' "'Ah, Captain,' I answered, "'where are we?' "'Underground, sir.' "'Underground,' I exclaimed, "'and the Nautilus floating still. "'It always floats. "'But I do not understand. "'Wait a few minutes. "'Our lantern will be lit, "'and if you like light places, "'you will be satisfied.' "'I stood on the platform and waited. "'The darkness was so complete "'that I could not even see Captain Nemo,' but looking to the zenith, exactly above my head, I seemed to catch an undecided gleam, a kind of twilight filling a circular hole. At this instant the lantern was lit, and its vividness dispelled the faint light. I closed my dazzled eyes for an instant, and then looked again. The Nautilus was stationary, floating near a mountain, which formed a sort of quay. The lake, then supporting it, was a lake imprisoned by a circle of walls, measuring two miles in diameter and six in circumference. Its level, the manometer showed, could only be the same as the outside level, for there must necessarily be a communication between the lake and the sea. The high partitions, leaning forward on their base, grew into a vaulted roof, bearing the shape of an immense funnel turned upside down. "'the height being about five or six hundred yards. "'At the summit was a circular orifice, "'by which I had caught the slight gleam of light, "'evidently daylight. "'Where are we?' I asked. "'In the very heart of an extinct volcano, "'the interior of which has been invaded by the sea "'after some great convulsion of the earth. "'While you were sleeping, Professor, "'the Nautilus penetrated to this lagoon by a natural canal,' "'which opens about ten yards beneath the surface of the ocean. "'This is its harbor of refuge, "'a sure, commodious and mysterious one, "'sheltered from all gales. "'Show me, if you can, "'on the coasts of any of your continents or islands, "'a road which can give such perfect refuge from all storms.' "'Certainly,' I replied. "'You are in safety here, Captain Nemo. "'Who could reach you in the heart of a volcano?' "'but did I not see an opening at its summit? "'Yes, its crater, formerly filled with lava, "'vapor and flames, and which now gives entrance "'the life-giving air we breathe. "'But what is this volcanic mountain? "'It belongs to one of the numerous islands "'with which the sea is strewn, "'to vessels a simple sandbank, "'to us an immense cavern. "'Chance led me to discover it, "'and chance served me well.' "'But of what use is this refuge, Captain? "'The Nautilus wants no port.' "'No, sir, but it wants electricity to make it move, "'and the wherewithal to make the electricity, "'sodium to feed the elements, "'coal from which to get the sodium, "'and a coal mine to supply the coal. "'And exactly on this spot, "'the sea covers entire forests, "'embedded during the geological periods, "'now mineralized and transformed into coal. "'For me, They are an inexhaustible mine. Your men follow the trade of miners here, then, Captain. Exactly so. These mines extend under the waves like the mines of Newcastle. Here, in their diving dresses, pickaxe, and shovel in hand, my men extract the coal, which I do not even ask from the mines of the earth. When I burn this combustible for the manufacture of sodium, the smoke escaping from the crater of the mountain... "'gives it the appearance of a still-active volcano. "'And we shall see your companions at work. "'No, not this time, at least, "'for I am in a hurry to continue our submarine tour of the earth. "'So I shall content myself with drawing from the reserve "'of sodium I already possess. "'The time for loading is one day only, "'and we continue our voyage. "'So if you wish to go over the cavern "'and make the round of the lagoon,' You must take advantage of to-day, Monsieur Aronnax. I thanked the captain and went to look for my companions who had not yet left their cabin. I invited them to follow me without saying where we were. They mounted the platform. Conseil, who was astonished at nothing, seemed to look upon it as quite natural that he should wake under a mountain after having fallen asleep under the waves but Ned Land thought of nothing but finding whether the cavern had an exit. After breakfast, about ten o'clock, we went down onto the mountain. "'Here we are, once more on land,' said Conseil. "'I do not call this land,' said the Canadian. "'And besides, we are not on it, but beneath it.' Between the walls of the mountains and the waters of the lake lay a sandy shore, which, at its greatest breadth, measured five hundred feet. On this soil one might easily make the tour of the lake, but the base of the high partitions was stony ground, with volcanic locks and enormous pumice stones lying in picturesque heaps. All these detached masses, covered with enamel, polished by the action of the subterraneous fires, shone resplendent by the light of our electric lantern. The mica dust from the shore, rising under our feet, "'flew like a cloud of sparks. "'The bottom now rose sensibly, "'and we soon arrived at long, circuitous slopes, "'or inclined plains, which shook us higher by degrees. "'But we were obliged to walk carefully among these conglomerates, "'bound by no cement, "'the feet slipping on the glassy crystal, felspar, and quartz. "'The volcanic nature of this enormous excavation,' was confirmed on all sides, and I pointed it out to my companions. Picture to yourselves, said I, what this crater must have been when filled with boiling lava and when the level of the incandescent liquid rose to the orifice of the mountain as though melted on the top of a hot plate. I can picture it perfectly, said Conseil. But, sir, will you tell me why the great architect has suspended operations and how it is that the furnace is replaced by the quiet waters of the lake. Most probably, Conseil, because some convulsion beneath the ocean produced that very opening which has served as a passage for the Nautilus. Then the waters of the Atlantic rushed into the interior of the mountain. There must have been a terrible struggle between the two elements, a struggle which ended in the victory of Neptune but many ages have run out since then, and the submerged volcano is now a peaceable grotto. Very well, replied Ned Land, I accept the explanation, sir, but in our own interests I regret that the opening of which you speak was not made above the level of the sea. But, friend Ned, said Conseil, if the passage had not been under the sea, the Nautilus could not have gone through it we continued ascending. The steps became more and more perpendicular and narrow. Deep excavations, which we were obliged to cross, cut them here and there. Sloping masses had to be turned. We slid upon our knees and crawled along. But Conseil's dexterity and the Canadian strength surmounted all obstacles. At a height of about thirty-one feet, the nature of the ground changed without becoming more practicable. To the conglomerate, "'succeeded black basalt, the first, "'dispread in layers of full bubbles, "'the latter forming regular prisms, "'placed like a colonnade supporting the spring of the immense vault, "'an admirable specimen of natural architecture. "'Between the blocks of basalt wound long streams of lava, "'long since grown cold, encrusted with rays, "'and in some places there were spread large carpets of sulphur. A more powerful light shone through the upper crater, shedding a vague glimmer over these volcanic depressions, forever buried in the bosom of this extinguished mountain. But our upward march was soon stopped, at a height of about 250 feet, by impassable obstacles. There was a complete vaulted arch overhanging us, and our ascent was changed to a circular walk. At the last change, vegetable life began to struggle with the mineral— some shrubs, and even some trees, grew from the fractures of the walls. I recognize some euphorbias, with the caustic sugar coming from them, heliotropes, quite incapable of justifying their name, sadly drooped, their clusters of flowers, both their color and perfume half gone. Here and there some chrysanthemums grew timidly at the foot of an aloe with long, sickly-looking leaves. But between the streams of lava... I saw some little violets, still slightly perfumed, and I admit that I smelt them with delight. Perfume is the soul of the flower, and sea-flowers have no soul. We had arrived at the foot of some sturdy dragon-trees, which had pushed inside the rocks with their strong roots, when Ned Land exclaimed, "'Ah, sir, a hive, a hive!' "'A hive,' I replied, with a gesture of incredulity,' "'Yes, a hive,' repeated the Canadian, "'and bees humming round it.' "'I approached, and was bound to believe my own eyes. "'There, at a hole bored in one of the dragon trees, "'were some thousands of these ingenious insects, "'so common in all the canaries, "'and whose produce is so much esteemed. "'Naturally enough, the Canadian wished to gather the honey, "'and I could not well oppose his wish.' A quantity of dry leaves mixed with sulphur he lit with a spark from his flint, and he began to smoke out the bees. The humming ceased by degrees, and the hive eventually yielded several pounds of the sweetest honey, with which Ned Land filled his haversack. "'When I have mixed this honey "'with the paste of the bread-fruit,' said he, "'I shall be able to offer you a succulent cake.' "'Pon my word,' said Conseil, "'it will be gingerbread,' "'Never mind the gingerbread,' said I. "'Let us continue our interesting walk.' "'At every turn of the path we were following, "'the lake appeared in all its length and breadth. "'The lantern lit up the whole of its peaceable surface, "'which knew neither ripple nor wave. "'The Nautilus remained perfectly immovable. "'On the platform and on the mountain, "'the ship's crew were working like black shadows, "'clearly carved against the luminous atmosphere.' We were now going round the highest crest of the first layers of rock which upheld the roof. I then saw that bees were not the only representatives of the animal kingdom in the interior of this volcano. Birds of prey hovered here and there in the shadows, or fled from their nests on the top of the rocks. There were sparrow-hawks with white breasts, and kestrels and down the slope scampered, with their long legs, several fine, fat bustards. I leave anyone to imagine the covetousness of the Canadian at the sight of this savoury game, and whether he did not regret having no gun. But he did his best to replace the lead by stones, and after several fruitless attempts he succeeded in wounding a magnificent bird. To say that he risked his life twenty times before reaching it is but the truth but he managed so well that the creature joined the honey-cakes in his bag. We were now obliged to descend toward the shore, the crest becoming impracticable. Above us the crater seemed to gape like the mouth of a well. From this place the sky could be clearly seen, and clouds dissipated by the west wind, leaving behind them, even on the summit of the mountain, their misty remnants, certain proof that they were only moderately high for the volcano did not rise more than 800 feet above the level of the ocean. Half an hour after the Canadians' last exploit, we'd regained the inner shore. Here, the floor was represented by large carpets of marine crystal, a little plant very good to pickle, which also bears the name of pierstone and sea-fennel. Conseil gathered some bundles of it. As to the fauna, it might be counted by thousands of crustacea of all sorts, "'lobsters, crabs, spider crabs, chameleon shrimps, "'and a large number of shells, rockfish, and limpets. Three quarters of an hour later, "'we'd finished our circuitous walk and were on board. "'The crew had just finished loading the sodium, "'and the Nautilus could have left that instant. "'But Captain Nemo gave no order. "'Did he wish to wait until night "'and leave the submarine passage secretly?' Perhaps so. Whatever it might be, the next day the Nautilus, having left its port, steered clear of all land at a few yards beneath the waves of the Atlantic. Chapter 11. The Sargasso Sea That day the Nautilus crossed a singular part of the Atlantic Ocean. No one can be ignorant of the existence of a current of warm water known by the name of the Gulf Stream after leaving the Gulf of Florida, we went in the direction of Spitzbergen, but before entering the Gulf of Mexico, about 45 degrees of north latitude, this current divides into two arms, the principal one going towards the coast of Ireland and Norway, while the second bends to the south, about the height of the Azores. Then, touching the African shore and describing a lengthened oval, returns to the Antilles, This second arm, it is rather a collar than an arm, surrounds with its circles of warm water that portion of the cold, quiet, immovable ocean called the Sargasso Sea, a perfect lake in the open Atlantic. It takes no less than three years for the great current to pass round it. Such was the region the Nautilus was now visiting, a perfect meadow, a close carpet of seaweed, fucus, and tropical berries, so thick and so compact that the stem of a vessel could hardly tear its way through it. And Captain Nemo, not wishing to entangle his screw in this herbaceous mass, kept some yards beneath the surface of the waves. The name sargasso comes from the Spanish word sargazo, which signifies kelp. This kelp, or berry plant, is the principal formation of this immense bank. And this is the reason why these plants unite in the peaceful basin of the Atlantic. The only explanation which can be given, he says, seems to me to result from the experience known to all the world. Place in a vase some fragments of cork or other floating body and give to the water in the vase a circular movement. The scattered fragments will unite in a group in the center of the liquid surface, that is to say, in the part least agitated. In the phenomenon we are considering the Atlantic is the vase, the Gulf Stream the circular current, and the Sargasso Sea the central point at which the floating bodies unite. I share Maury's opinion, and I was able to study the phenomenon in the very midst, where vessels rarely penetrate. Above us floated products of all kinds, heaped up among these brownish plants trunks of trees torn from the Andes or the Rocky Mountains, and floated by the Amazon or the Mississippi, numerous wrecks, remains of keels or ships' bottoms, side planks stove in, and so weighted with shelves and barnacles that they could not again rise to the surface. And time will one day justify Morrie's other opinion, that these substances, thus accumulated for ages, will become petrified by the action of the water and will then form inexhaustible coal-mines, a precious reserve prepared by far-seeing nature for the moment when men shall have exhausted the mines of continents. In the midst of this inextricable mass of plants and seaweed, I noticed some charming pink halcyons with their long tentacles trailing after them, and medusa green, red, and blue. All the day of the 22nd of February we passed in the Sargasso Sea, where such fish as are partial to marine plants find abundant nourishment. The next, the ocean had returned to its accustomed aspect. From this time for nineteen days, from the 23rd of February till the 12th of March, the Nautilus kept in the middle of the Atlantic, carrying us at a constant speed of a hundred leagues in twenty-four hours. Captain Nemo evidently intended accomplishing his submarine program, and I imagined that he intended, after doubling Cape Horn, to return to the Australian seas of the Pacific. That land had cause for fear. In these large seas, void of islands, we could not attempt to leave the boat, nor had we any means of opposing Captain Nemo's will. Our only course was to submit, but what we could neither gain by force nor cunning, I like to think, might be obtained by persuasion." This voyage ended would he not consent to restore our liberty under an oath never to reveal his existence, an oath of honor which we should have religiously kept. But we must consider that delicate question with the captain. But was I free to claim this liberty had he not himself said from the beginning in the firmest manner that the secret of his life exacted from him our lasting imprisonment on board the Nautilus?' and would not my four months' silence appear to him a tacit acceptance of our situation, and would not a return to the subject result in raising suspicions which might be hurtful to our projects if at some future time a favorable opportunity offered to return to them? During the nineteen days mentioned above, no incident of any kind happened to signalize our voyage. I saw little of the captain. He was at work. In the library I often found his books left open, especially those on natural history. My work on submarine depths, conned over by him, was covered with marginal notes, often contradicting my theories and systems. But the captain contented himself with thus purging my work. It was very rare for him to discuss it with me. Sometimes I heard the melancholy tones of his organ, but only at night, in the midst of the deepest obscurity, when the Nautilus slept upon the deserted ocean. During this part of our voyage, we sailed whole days on the surface of the waves. The sea seemed abandoned. A few sailing vessels, on the road to India, were making for the Cape of Good Hope. One day we were followed by the boats of a whaler, who, no doubt, took us for some enormous whale of great price. But Captain Nemo did not wish the worthy fellows to lose their time and trouble, so ended the chase by plunging under the water. Our navigation continued until the 13th of March. That day, the Nautilus was employed in taking soundings, which greatly interested me. We had then made about 13,000 leagues since our departure from the high seas of the Pacific. The bearings gave us 45 degrees 37 south latitude and 37 degrees 53 west longitude. It was the same water in which Captain Denham of the Herald sounded 7,000 fathoms, without finding the bottom. There, too, Lieutenant Parker, of the American Frigate Congress, could not touch the bottom with 15,140 fathoms. Captain Nemo intended seeking the bottom of the ocean by a diagonal sufficiently lengthened by means of lateral planes, placed at an angle of 45 degrees with the waterline of the Nautilus. Then the screw, set to work at its maximum speed, its four blades beating the waves with an indescribable force. Under this powerful pressure, the hull of the Nautilus quivered under the water. At 7,000 fathoms, I saw some blackish tops rising from the midst of the waters. But these summits might belong to high mountains, like the Himalayas or Mont Blanc, even higher, and the depth of the abyss remained incalculable. The Nautilus descended still lower, in spite of the great pressure. I felt the steel plates tremble at the fastenings of the bolts. Its bars bent, its partitions groaned. The windows of the saloon seemed to curve under the pressure of the waters. And this firm structure would doubtless have yielded if, as its captain had said, it had not been capable of resistance like a solid block. We had attained a depth of 16,000 yards, four leagues, and the sides of the Nautilus then bore a pressure of 1,600 atmospheres, that is to say, 3,200 pounds, to each square two-fifths of an inch of its surface. "'What a situation to be in!' I exclaimed. "'To overrun these deep regions where man has never trod. "'Look, Captain, look at these magnificent rocks, "'these uninhabited grottoes!' these lowest receptacles of the globe where life is no longer possible. What unknown sights are here? Why should we be unable to preserve a remembrance of them? Would you like to carry away more than the remembrance?' said Captain Nemo. "'What do you mean by those words?' "'I mean to say that nothing is easier than to make a photographic view of this submarine region.' I had not time to express my surprise at this new proposition.' when, at Captain Nemo's call, an objective was brought into the saloon. Through the widely opened panel, the liquid mass was bright with electricity, which was distributed with such uniformity that not a shadow was to be seen in our manufactured light. The Nautilus remained motionless, the force of its screw subdued by the inclination of its planes. The instrument was propped on the bottom of the oceanic site, "'and in a few seconds we had obtained a perfect negative. "'But the operation being over, Captain Nemo said, "'Let us go up. We must not abuse our position, "'nor expose the Nautilus too long to such great pressure. "'Go up again,' I exclaimed. "'Hold well on.' "'I had not time to understand why the captain cautioned me thus, "'when I was thrown forward onto the carpet.' At a signal from the captain, its screw was shipped, and its blades raised vertically. The Nautilus shot into the air like a balloon. Nothing was visible, and in four minutes it had shot through the four leagues, which separated it from the ocean, and after emerging like a flying fish, fell, making the waves rebound to an enormous height. WUNC.